0: Hello and welcome to episode 92 of Onion Unlimited, the podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Torrigan. In this episode, I ask should Q jumpers be punished? When does JW activism become unhealthy? And what's it like partaking of the memorial emblems for the first time? Well, you're back with me, Daniel Torridon. And honestly, I think the world has gone completely crazy. It is now 10 days since Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby, two of the best loved TV presenters in the UK, allegedly, jumped a queue. (gasps) Now, granted, it was a long queue, uh, 16 hours long, to be precise. And it was a queue to see the dead queen in her coffin. But we are now 10 days on from the alleged queue jumping incident, and it's still dominating the news. And that I find remarkable. Like, is that really news that somebody jumped a queue? Uh, I don't think it is, to be honest. I think it might have been worthy of a mention in view of the perceived status of Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby, but to still be talking about it 10 days on is, I think, just overkill. And, And here's the thing. People are completely up in arms about it, especially people that were in the queue, and they're demanding the sacking of these two TV presenters from ITV. There was a petition started, and two days ago, the number of people that had signed the petition for Holly and Phil to be sacked had reached a massive 75,000 people. Now, obviously people are upset and I think I would be too if I was standing in a queue for 16 hours and then somebody came along and jumped the queue. But the question is, did they jump the queue? They say no, ITV says no. Uh, In fact, they say that they were there to cover a piece for ITV that would be aired. And this is this is strange. I've not seen that piece. Have you seen that piece? I read somewhere that apparently there was some footage of them interviewing somebody on a rather shaky phone camera. Uh, But I've not actually seen any footage on the television of Holly and Phil actually interviewing anyone at the at the Queen's state resting. Now, that to me is a bit odd, I must admit. Uh, So let's just assume for a moment. Let's go with the critics and say that Phil and Holly did indeed use their perceived status to jump a massive queue and they pissed everybody off. Let's just say that that is the truth of the matter for a moment. Does that warrant losing your job? Hmm. I honestly don't think it does. I think there's much worse things going on in the world where people need to be taken account. And just the fact that they've suffered in terms of their public persona. I think that's enough. Don't you? Embarrassment, name and shame if indeed they did jump the queue. You can tell it's wearing on them. Both of them are looking uh, very stressed as a result of this. And I would have said, if indeed they did jump a queue, that would be punishment enough, wouldn't you? But apparently not. People want, their, want them to be sacked from their jobs, of which they've been remarkably good for many, many years. Just to illustrate the fact in November I am going with my girlfriend Mariella to watch the London stage show Les Miserables and now if you're familiar with that story it's the story of a guy that because he was hungry he stole a loaf of bread the punishment for stealing a loaf of bread he was put in prison for well for life is that a punishment that fits the crime I don't think so I think that is way overkill and I think anyone in their right mind today would Say so the same. If you stole a loaf of bread from Tesco, if someone was, uh, if someone did that and they were sent to prison for life, people would be in uproar over that. I think, and rightly so. When it comes to punishment or sanctions or public opinion, surely, surely the punishment must fit the crime. And I just can't see how jumping a and pissing a load of people off warrants losing your job over it. Losing your job is probably one of the one of the most uh, one of the most stressful things to go through. I've been made redundant before. And, uh, you know, that idea of having to try and find a new job and so forth. And OK, Philip and Holly have probably got a bit of money stashed in the bank. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's still their job. And I I honestly think it's over the top to say that they should lose their jobs just because they jumped A. Q. And yeah, don't forget they're still claiming innocence, aha uh-huh. And ITV is saying that they were there for professional reasons. And I think the way that we could, the way that ITV could end this crazy, crazy witch hunt would be to air the footage, air the air the footage that they apparently took. Surely, if that's uh, if that's the case, the footage is available. They could air it. I've just not seen it. Has anyone else seen it? Leave a comment below. <laughs> Meanwhile, I think there are much more serious things going on in the world that are newsworthy. And honestly, I just wish some of these news stations would shut up, just shut up when it comes to some of these things, you know, report it once if you must. Uh, But 10 days later to still be hashing it out, I think it's just ridiculous. And I think people that buy into that, the people that actually enjoy that kind of news, In uh, inverted commas, I think they're very sad individuals. Let's go back to news that is actually newsworthy. That's what I say. Okay, sticking with the thought of people going over the top with things. uh, I don't know if this question is really answerable. When does JW activism become unhealthy? There's so many factors involved, not least of all the, the personality, the emotional makeup of the activist themself but uh, at what point do you think that activism becomes unhealthy i have a couple of observations i want to make here two two things that i've seen which personally i i don't think are healthy behavior number 1 following a leader it seems to me that some people like to be led human nature maybe or or possibly just laziness, I don't know. But some people feel the need for a leader to do all the legwork for them, and I think there is an immediate danger there. Now, I'm not saying that leadership is intrinsically wrong, in certain situations, it's very necessary. And I guess it depends on the the leader. But what I don't like, what I really, really don't like is how certain individuals, let's say certain prominent activists are offered up or worse, offer themselves up as the face of a cause, for example, the face of the XJW community. Now, Doing that just sets everyone up for disappointment. I think you see those leaving Jehovah's Witnesses have they've already left a cult, a high control group with leaders, whether that's the governing body or elders that tell you what to think, what to say, what to do. The whole point of leaving a cult surely is to be free of that control and to live an authentic life. But for some reason, I really don't get this. Some ex-witnesses fall straight back into wanting to follow certain individuals and wanting to belong to a new group. And then inevitably their chosen leader or individuals within their new group disappoint them and there becomes a lot of bad feeling. Now, when I start to feel I'm being drawn into a group, a group mentality, I actually start to feel quite uncomfortable. Don't get me wrong, when I say I'm against following individuals, I don't I don't just mean following as in following someone on social media, for example, who perhaps provides content that you find useful. What I mean is a person who gains a following that virtually amounts to being idolized, I guess. Like they then become a cult leader themselves, placed on a pedestal, so to speak. This idea of being in a certain person's camp with everyone who follows that person being expected to think and feel and act a certain way, that kind of peer pressure to conform to me, that seems no different than being in a cult. Now, when I left the Watchtower organisation, I was determined to remain free and find my own path. And I'm quite proud of the fact. I, I, I think I've managed to do that. It's not easy. Uh, sometimes I think it would be far simpler to find a group with a set of beliefs that I can adopt wholesale or at least pretend to without feeling too compromised and have all the work done for me. But that's not me. Uh, I've mentioned before, I'd don't feel I'm part of an XJW community and I've really got no desire to be. I'm forging my own way, I guess you could say. I used to be a JW, now I'm not. XJW may be a fitting uh, hashtag for some of the content I put out, but it doesn't define who I am. I refuse to spend the rest of my life focusing on something that I used to be, but now I'm not, or trying to fit in with any particular off the shelf set of beliefs or principles, let alone following a person who has elevated themselves in a so-called community as a leader. I'd much, much rather focus on finding my own way in life spiritually and otherwise. And I absolutely will not identify it with any self-styled leaders wishing to cultivate a following. Just coming back to the uh, Holly and Phil situation, it always strikes me as strange that people put stars, celebrities on pedestals and treat them as if they're better than themselves, as if they're special, as if they're almost godlike and idolatrous kind of status. But then if that person acts like a god or acts as if they're better than the people that follow them. It then, uh, there's then outcry, you know, how dare these people act, <laughs> act like gods, act as if they're better than us. And yet we as followers have actually put them in that position. And it's one of those things, I think it's human nature, if you put someone in that position and, you know, you heap the praise on them and you make them feel like they are your your god, your leader, it's I would say it's very, very difficult for humans to actually take that level of praise and not get a bit above themselves. Now, I'm not saying that Holly and Phil have done that at all. But if that was the case, if that was the case, if they did jump that queue because they felt they were better than other people or they used their privilege, who's given them that privilege in the first place? Surely it's the uh, the people that follow them. Number two, putting out too much XJW content. I really do think this is unhealthy. There are, I concede, certain things that have needed to be said about this dangerous and destructive cult. The Watchtower's false prophecies have needed to be documented. The governing body has needed to be exposed as the self-appointed frauds that they are. And most definitely, the organization's mishandling of child sexual abuse has needed to be highlighted. None of these things do I debate, but these things and other things like them have, I feel, been dealt with many, many, many times over and very effectively. There's a huge body of work out there showing where the Watchtower organization has fallen down. Just one website alone, JW Facts, which I know has helped a lot of people to uh, to wake up. Just that website alone pretty much says everything that's ever needed to be said about the Watchtower and how rubbish they are. Now, it might serve a purpose, I think, for others to reiterate these points when, for example, they wake up and leave the organisation themselves. And it can even be. Personally, therapeutic. I certainly found that myself that feeling that once you've left the cult, you are no longer being silenced and you can speak out and say how you feel about things. But once you've said it, once you've said it, once you've added your voice to the masses that have exposed the Watchtower publicly, I really don't see the point of continuing to produce a tirade of content day in, day out. In fact, I think it becomes even counterproductive doing so not only becomes unhealthy for the individual activist, but also I feel it waters down the main issues. Sometimes it just seems to me that JW activists are just producing content for the sake of it, especially when they're being paid to do so through, say, YouTube revenue or Patreon supporters. And when that happens, I think the content becomes diluted. And I think the integrity of the message is compromised. It does seem to me that sometimes the information that's put out about the Watchtower Society becomes overly picky. Now, I'm not about giving the Watchtower a free pass here. It's a terrible organisation, dangerous, destructive. People need to know how bad it is. They need to know not to join it in the first place lest they sign their life away to a cult, which will ruin their lives. But scouring JW.org every single day for things to criticise becomes, I feel, it's an unhealthy obsession, I think. To these ones, I would say, say your piece, and when you've said it, let it go, move on. And why not have a life free of Jehovah's Witnesses? Don't waste the rest of your life fighting an organisation that's already taken so much from you. Speak your truth and let others who follow in your footsteps concur with your observations. Move on. Honestly, I, I just don't think it's particularly helpful to keep regurgitating things that the watchtower said, say, in the 1960s or 70s. Witnesses hearing these kind of criticisms will undoubtedly say, yes, but that was then. What really matters is what the organisation is doing now, implying that the organisation is above criticism now. Now, don't get me wrong. Some critical review of Watchtower's past errors is, I believe, necessary, particularly from a doctrinal perspective. It it demonstrates that the very foundation that the organisation was built on was crooked. And as Jesus himself pointed out, you don't get fine fruit from a rotten tree. But harping on about every single mistake the Watchtower has ever made in their history isn't isn't helpful at all. It just looks like apostates being overly picky, in my opinion. As an example, as an example, yes, in the 1960s, the Watchtower slammed homosexuality. But but here's the thing, as wrong as that was, that was the general feeling of many people, particularly religious people in the day. Now, I'm not saying it was right to do that, but it wasn't unusual. There's there's no story here. There's no story here at all. This is just how life was back in the day. Yes, they criticised organ transplants, for example, But so did many other people of the time who felt it was morally objectionable, say on uh, religious grounds, playing God. You know, the important thing, I think what really, really matters is what the organisation teaches now. And I think that's what we need to be focusing on. There are plenty of things currently wrong with the organisation without having to dredge up past errors or at least not too many of them (laughs) right now. At this moment, Watchtower mandates the shunning of family members who formally disassociate, even if they've done nothing wrong. This is a kind of forced compliance and it's the hallmark of a destructive cult. People need to know about that. They need to know people's stories of people being shunned by their by their family and friends. Right now, Watchtower forces its members to refuse life-saving blood transfusions at the threat of being shunned again. This is costing Lives. Again, people need to know about this. Right now, the organization has a database of paedophiles names that they've refused to provide to the relevant authorities. People need to know about that, and pressure needs to be put on the Watchtower organization to produce those names, not to not to harbor paedophiles within their midst. Right now, at this very moment, eight men in America are masquerading as God's mouthpiece on earth, as a self-appointed, faithful and discreet slave. That needs reasons for, for that not being the case to be highlighted so people can see that they are the frauds That they are right now. Right now, the organisation teaches false doctrines: the 607 doctrine, 1914, 144,000 things like that. These are these are the things that truly matter. These are the big issues that should be, I believe, kept at the forefront of any JW activism. As ones leave the organisation, I think they should tell their stories as to why they personally left. What we don't need, what we don't need, I think, is continual stories about, for example, how years ago the Watchtower uh, decried aluminium cooking pots as being bad in 1950 something or what the golden age magazine said about miracle wheat or God knows what else. My point is I think keep it relevant, keep it focused, keep it current and, and just don't say too much. Of course, that's just my approach. Who's to say that I'm right. I'm I'm sure some will think I'm completely wrong there. And that a constant flow of anti watchtower rhetoric from prominent ones in the so-called XJW community is the way forward. You know, keep the pressure on highlight every error the governing body makes and ever has made. Some will think that's a good idea. Constant rebuttals of every single new video that Watchtower uploads. I just don't think that's necessary or healthy. For the so called community or people listening to the information, and for the actual activists themselves, I think there's a risk that you can just be kind of sucked into this black hole of XJW content and never really escape the cult. You never really escape, you never really escape the information, and you just keep feeding yourself on the same stuff all the time. Whereas, really, it should be a clean break. That's what I believe. I think we should decide on the key issues, answer them effectively, and then tell Watchtower to piss off <laughs> as we move on in our lives, free of their stupid little cult. For me, the real issue with the Watchtower has never really been how stupid or illogical or just plain batshit crazy some of the JW beliefs are. Everyone, I feel, is entitled to believe Whatever they want, however nuts it sounds, as long as it doesn't hurt other people. What I don't like and what I feel is dangerous and destructive is the mandating of certain behaviours en masse at threat of being punished with shunning by those that you love, while falsely claiming that it's a personal choice and that uh, normal family relations continue. Probably the biggest lie that's ever been told by uh, Jehovah's Witnesses lawyers in court. Let the brothers and sisters decide if they want to, for example, continue associating with ones who leave the organisation. Let them decide as individuals if they, for example, want a blood transfusion or not. It's their life after all. And Don't punish them if their conscience dictates differently to the official interpretation of scripture that's given by the governing body. And definitely don't shun a person if they don't accept your interpretation as being correct. For example, 1914, the unity at all costs approach is really damaging. If you don't believe that and you express that you Don't believe that you end up getting shunned by all your family and friends. And that I think that is why I particularly now personally value my spiritual autonomy Charles Taze Russell, the uh, founder of the Watchtower organization, actually said something very similar to this in Zion's Watchtower, September 15th, 1895. On page 216, he said, do not seek to bind others consciences and do not permit others to bind yours I think that was a much better approach than what the organisation has fallen into now, which is basically they have a very, very specific doctrinal creed and, um, They spell out exactly what you are and aren't allowed to do and what the punishments are for infractions of those rules. This is so, so far away from people having personal spiritual autonomy. I think particularly since the 1980s, I've seen a tightening up on uh, the rules and regulations and the associated punishments. And coming back to this thought when we were talking about Holly and uh, Phil, you know, they jumped to queue. People are demanding the the uh, resignation or the sacking of, uh, of those from their jobs. That is, in my opinion, disproportionate to the so-called crime that has occurred. And I think Watchtower has actually gone that way as well. You know, um, to say that if you... Decide to leave the organisation and disassociate. To say that that warrants being cut off by your entire family and friends network—that is just so out of proportion. And even things where you might argue that yes, you know, you broke one of the Bible's rules. For example, holding my hands up here, I was unfaithful to my wife for various reasons. We won't go into the reasons, but I was—I was unfaithful. I broke my marriage. My marriage was over. My wife divorced me. That is all fair and and right. But at what point does it become disproportionate to the crime or the the sin? (laughs) Adultery in this country is not a crime. At what point does it become disproportionate? You see, my children being told that they must shun me because I broke one of God's laws and never speak to me again. Surely that's disproportionate. And I think that's the state that the watchtower has has reached. It's uh, become very, very highly controlling and uh, it mandates and forces compliance with their with their rules and their regulations. This week, I realised I had a comment come in on uh, YouTube uh, from two months ago, actually, but it's only just showed up on my feed from Mike G75, possibly a reference there to the generation of 1975. I don't know, but Mike says, I'm leaving the cult and I'm going to do so while I hijack the mic during the Spiritual Gems routine at the meeting, and ask a series of congregation participation questions, leading them into agreeing that they love the new convention and agree that the governing body are the spokesman for Jehovah. And then I'm going to ask them their thoughts on abortion. And then I'm going to ask them what they think of, brother, let's talk to the Christian congregation about babies being the enemy of God, ruining the rest of the meeting and hopefully waking them up. Hmm. I get where Mike is coming from all those are very valid uh, criticisms and thoughts but I'm just not sure how I personally feel about this idea on the one hand I totally get why Mike would want to do this to make a uh, somewhat of a public spectacle Of himself. There were times as a Jehovah's Witness that I felt like doing exactly the same thing. In fact, one of the charges against me in uh, my apostasy judicial hearing in 2006 was that I had actually stated to one of the elders at one point that I would always be directed by the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit directed me (laughs) as an anointed Christian to uh, stand up in the Kingdom Hall and uh, tell everyone that they were wrong, I would do so. I made that that statement to an elder in private, and that actually became the subject or or part of the uh, part of the subject of my uh, disfellowshipping in two thousand and six. Basically, all I was saying was I I just meant that I would always do the right thing, and if something needed saying, you know, I would I would say it. But uh, that was, of course, taken wrongly. And I think there's a risk here that if you did anything like this, if you were to, as Mike says, hijack the mic in a meeting and start trying to get the congregation to think about how uh, they're in a cult and uh, hopefully waking them up. I don't know how that would go down. I certainly think as soon as they realised what you were doing, I think the elders would uh, hijack you. (laughs) You'd get the microphone taken away pretty quick. People have done it. People have given answers from their seats. Uh, people have even had the courage to stand on the platform and in the middle of a public talk, they've they've um, come out as being, uh, you know, against the Watchtower Society and explain their reasons. And they've been physically marched off the platform. And the thing is, how does that make people in the audience feel? It, it upsets them. It upsets them to start with. I personally don't think I can could do something quite as public as that, if I'm honest, despite my earlier claims, just simply because I don't like confrontation and I I don't like upsetting people for that matter. Certainly, certainly not en masse in a uh, in a kingdom hall. But maybe that's what it takes. Maybe it does take some of these courageous ones to uh, speak out in the middle of a meeting uh, in an answer or in, in their talks. Maybe that's what it takes. Maybe it would wake people up. But for the most part, I think people just when they start hearing things they don't want to hear, they just stick their fingers in their ears and start singing la, la, la. Maybe if someone's already starting to doubt, already thinking and questioning things, that might help a bit. It might uh, might give them the, uh, the the final push that they need to uh, get over the line, so to speak, and leave the, leave the cult. But I think for the most part, I, th- I think if you try and do that, Mike, You'll just be uh, you'll just be carried out of the Kingdom Hall and uh, thrown outside. <laughs> Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. You know, you've you've got to uh, you've got to think about this yourself. But I I don't think I would probably do something like that. Finally, today, I'm going to talk to you about what it was like coming out <laughs> as uh, an anointed person in uh, the Jehovah's Witness organisation. Now, for anyone that doesn't understand what this is, in most Christian organisations, Christians believe uh, that they, when they die, they're going to go to heaven or when Jesus comes back to judge the earth, they're going to be raptured and go to heaven. It's not an unusual belief. Jehovah's Witnesses are quite different from this in that they believe that the number of people that are going to heaven is limited To 144,000 people. And they base that on the scripture in Revelation chapter 7. Now, the strange thing is that while they view the scripture that talks about the various tribes of Israel as being figurative because those tribes don't actually match up with the actual 12 tribes of Israel. For example, there's a tribe of Levi mentioned in Revelation 7, verse 3 to 8. Levi was, of course, the priestly tribe and wasn't included in with the 12. Levi was a 13th tribe. And of course, many of the things in uh, Revelation are figurative. But when it comes to this number of 144,000 they take that as very, very literal. And in doing so, what they've done is they've actually created two groups of Christians. They've got 144,000 that they think are going to heaven and then the rest of mankind, if they survive Armageddon. So uh, we're talking about Jehovah's Witnesses themselves, 8 million or so of those. They will survive Armageddon and go on to live forever on uh, the earth in paradise. And they also teach that there will be many millions of billions even of people that have died over the years that never got the opportunity to become uh, Jehovah's Witnesses that will also be resurrected back to life and be taught and tested and and so forth and given the chance to live forever. But you've just got this 144,000 that go to heaven. Now, Although many times they've stated that we're all brothers within the organisation, brothers and sisters, and the anointed are not sort of extra special or anything like that. That's not really what it's like at grassroots level. A person who is anointed is often viewed as quite different to everyone else. There's a certain amount of uh, mystery about it all and people that actually say that they feel they are anointed and that their, their hope for the future is heavenly. It kind of just depends on the congregation and the person themselves as to how that person is is treated. Some people are accepted and actually looked up to, admired for being one of the anointed. Uh, certainly the governing body members are. We had a circuit overseer who claimed to be of the anointed for a period of time. Everyone was very, ooh, quite mysterious and mystical and, you know, talking about how he was anointed behind the scenes. He actually decided after a while that he wasn't anointed and he uh, he stopped partaking of the, uh, the bread and the wine at the memorial. But, you know, some people are sort of put on a pedestal If they're anointed, other people are not put on a pedestal. Uh, Quite often, this tends to be sisters in the congregation that say that they're anointed and particularly younger ones. At one point in time, if you were not in your 70s or 80s, Anything lesser than that was uh, you were viewed as probably too young to be anointed. They used to think that by 1935, there was a teaching that by 1935, all of the 144,000 had been selected. And the only time that someone would ever get looking as a member of the anointed after 1935 is if one of those 144,000 was to become unfaithful and drop out. And then God would choose a new a new anointed one but he would only choose from among ones that had been in the organization in the truth so to speak for many many years uh ones that were tried and tested and were you know in their their sort of later years 70s 80s 90s and so forth so when i came along in uh, 2004 at the age of 34 and said i'm anointed <laughs> I'm going to start taking of the memorial emblems. Uh, I actually told a couple of close friends, my dad and one of the elders, just so it wasn't a surprise for them. When they heard about that, it was it was a bit of a mixed bag of reactions. My very good friend, Chris, uh, when I told him that I was going to partake of the emblems and uh, not to be shocked, he um, (laughs) he actually responded with with great enthusiasm. He said, congratulations. as if this was some sort of amazing uh, prize or something I'd won. I I suppose from a biblical sense, it is, isn't it? Being anointed by God's Holy Spirit. But one of the elders I told, the presiding overseer, was not quite so enthusiastic. He wanted to come around and negotiate with me, as he put it, uh, to uh, try and help me to see that I wasn't anointed, I was you know, being uh, misled. And then there there was uh, my dad. He wasn't too keen at first, although he did come around to the idea later. And uh, it was a bit of a mixed bag. I would say on the whole, there were quite a few in the congregation that I was in at the time that were, let's say, nothing nothing less than jealous, actually. When they uh, saw me partake of the memorial emblems at the 2005 uh, Memorial of Jesus' death, there there was uh, some sharp intakes of breath and afterwards there was quite a lot of gossip. Um, people started to say, you know, oh, he, he's either apostate or he's uh, or he's mentor. <laughs> One of the two. And that is because of some of the some of the things that have actually been written in the Watchtower magazines themselves. There's been a number of articles written, particularly uh, just before the memorials each year that say that people that partake of the emblems well, first of all, they shouldn't be put on pedestals, which is good. That's good. But then it, it kind of introduces doubt. These people are either, uh, they've got mental health issues or they're too enthusiastic. Maybe, maybe they belong to a, uh, a religion before that was kind of of the Pentecostal type or, uh, they're from Africa or something like that. <laughs> Lots of strange reasons as to why, uh, they doubt your anointing with Holy Spirit. So, uh, yeah, it was a bit of a mixed bag. Some people accepted me. Uh, one or two did. Other people absolutely did not accept me and made it completely clear that they didn't believe me and that I was a threat and a danger to the congregation. And some people just kept kept their mouths shut for the most part. Most people just kind of stood on the sidelines and, and watched on. But uh, I still remember the first time that I partook of the emblems. It was 2005. And I'd got quite a few uh, people I was studying the Bible with. There was a guy called Len that I used to work with and his wife, Karen. There was a young lass called Rebecca that I was studying the Bible with. There was a guy that used to sell uh, diamonds, (laughs) quite a rich guy. Steve, I think his name was, he was studying with me. And then there were two girls. One was called Lisa and the other one can't remember her name. Uh, they used to live uh, behind my house over the back on a uh, on an estate. They were rather rough and ready, uh, but they, they were lovely. And uh, I used to study the Bible with them. And on this particular night, Memorial of Christ's death, uh, 2005, all of them turned up at the memorial. So there was myself, my wife, our three children at the time, five of us, plus Len, Karen, Steve, Rebecca, Lisa and this other girl can't remember her name, but that was 11 people all sitting on my row with me. I've never had that many people come to a memorial before that I've invited. Um, I'd never had it before that. I never had it after that. But that particular year, the year that I partook of the emblems for the very first time, I had 11 people on my row. So I was sort of feeling the, the love and the uh, support from them. Um, <laughs> one of the funny things that happened was uh, Lisa and her friend actually turned up a bit worse for wear. They'd been out drinking before the memorial. They'd uh, been around some of the bars and clubs. And uh, yeah, they clearly had had a few. So they were a bit giggly and so forth. So um, I had everything on to uh, (laughs) try and uh, encourage him not to start drinking the wine (laughs) when it came around. They did behave themselves on that. But something really really funny happened as the bread and the wine was being passed around there was a very sort of sombre atmosphere everyone was very quiet you know nothing being said as that was happening people were sort of uh thinking about the death of jesus and how it pertained to them uh, lisa's phone went off and uh, she had a ringtone i think it was pink yeah get the party started <laughs> That was the uh, the ringtone that went off right in the middle of the uh, bread and wine being passed around. So that drew attention to me as well. And uh, just generally speaking, after the memorial, there were a lot of uh, strange looks and uh, stunned silence, I think. But uh, that changed over the years. For the most part, as uh, certainly as I grew a bit older, people were OK with the fact that I was partaking of the emblems. And uh, some were actually very, very supportive, which was nice. But I was never in one of those positions where I was never one of those people was uh, put on a pedestal. I just wasn't. People didn't view me like that. And I was happy about that. Actually, I went around as an anointed person being uh, quite, uh, quite stealth <laughs> didn't really draw a lot of attention to myself or talk about it very much uh, apart from maybe with uh, some of my very close friends sometimes we talk about our various hopes for the future whether they'd be heavenly or uh, or earthly now of course coming out as one of the anointed in 2005 gave that particular presiding overseer, I was talking about earlier, a lot of ammunition to uh, start questioning my loyalty to the organisation. And he did. And in time, I was actually disfellowshipped Uh, 2006. I was disfellowshipped on a charge of apostasy. But even during the three years I was disfellowshipped for apostasy, I still attended. Well, I still attended the meetings, but I still attended the memorials each year and I still partook of the emblems. Of course, they won't have counted me as one of the 144,000. But uh, I did that, nevertheless. And when I was reinstated, of course, carried on doing that quite openly. When I was reinstated, I was actually in a, I'd I'd just moved into a new congregation, actually, and um, hardly anyone knew me. So I was at this memorial, first memorial in this new congregation, newly reinstated, bread and wine came around, and I partook. And there was an elderly sister actually sat a couple of uh, rows behind me, audibly, very loudly, <laughs> actually said out loud, that's disgusting. And everyone kind of swung round and caught a glimpse of me uh, drinking the wine or whatever. I still remember, actually, there was a, a young sister in the congregation who approached her afterwards and uh, basically tore a strip off of her for uh, doubting one of the Lord's anointed, <laughs> as she put it. I've discussed uh, in other podcasts, why I felt I was anointed at the time. It had always been something very close to my heart. Uh, my granddad, on my dad's side, was actually also one of the anointed. He was. Um, he came into the organisation in the 1930s, late 30s, I believe, and it was in the 50s that he first started partaking of the memorial emblems, the bread and wine, and that was actually quite quite a revelation to people, because he'd said nothing beforehand. He'd not even told his own family, He'd not told his own wife or kids that he was going to partake of the emblems. What he had been doing for a few weeks uh, prior to the memorial is he'd spent quite a bit of time speaking to another sister in the congregation who was of the anointed, even to the point where uh, during the interval, yes, there used to be intervals in the meetings years ago. During the interval, he actually uh, would go for a walk with his sister to the end of the road and back, obviously talking about things to do with heavenly life. And uh, at the time, my nan uh, thought that um, her husband was possibly possibly having an affair or getting feelings for this sister. But he wasn't. He was uh, he was just talking about his hope for the future and how he felt he was anointed. And uh, yeah. At this particular uh, memorial one year, he partook the emblems and he hadn't told anyone, not even his wife. And there was a (gasps) sharp intake of breath again. So there's always been this kind of of mystery and uh, this mysticism sort of associated with being anointed. People are never really quite sure what to make of it. And I I definitely experienced some of that myself. But uh, my personal feelings on it are that there is only one type of Christian, and that is anointed, you know, anointed means Christ. And uh, if we are going to have Christ as our head, so to speak, and if we are the body of Christ, you, you know, then you are by definition anointed, you know, of the Christ. But that's, uh, that's, as I've said, that's not how the uh, Watchtower organisation portrays it. They've come up with this two-tier system where you're either going to heaven to rule or you're going to be on earth and be a subject. And it's very much us and them, as indeed uh, so many cult situations are. Now, I'm often asked, uh, do I still view myself as anointed? And the answer is kind of yes, but no. Let me see if I can explain this. I absolutely, absolutely respect Jesus Christ. And I absolutely respect the, uh, the, the, the kind of whole process of being born again, anointed, born again with a hope of being with Jesus after death. I get that. I totally respect that. But I have kind of moved on from that, I think, in a way, insofar as I understand my identity. In a different way than I used to. There used to be this feeling that I had that there was God and Jesus and then I was being brought into a a close relationship with them. But the more I thought about this, the more I came to realise that I am the infinite reality, the absolute reality, if you will. I am God. Uh, and so are you. You know, this is not something that <laughs> I'm just claiming for myself here. But I have as time's gone on, I've adopted the Advaita Vedanta belief that there is only one, one absolute, one infinite, one being. And we as individuals are, are purely projections or manifestations of God. So I don't really see any need now to have this kind of dual situation going on where I am worshipping somebody. If I am God, if God is me, I am God and we're all one and the same. Why would I worship anyone or anything? And in terms of Jesus himself, I feel very much that uh, the golden rule is the number one thing that he taught. And if we are good and kind to other people, that is really what we need to be doing, certainly if we're spiritual, I don't see any need now for any of the ritual or the, uh, you know, the passing of bread and wine and prayers and worship and meetings and attendance at church or Kingdom Hall or whatever. I just don't see a need for any of that anymore. And that, I think, is where Jesus, as a spiritual teacher, wanted to get us He didn't want us to be certainly not enslaved by the old Jewish system of things with all all their sacrifices. And I don't think he ever intended for Christianity to be what it's become today. You know, this religion with all the rituals and uh, the kind of question marks over uh, your identity. I think it's a very, very simple thing when you come to realise that you are the infinite, the absolute Brahman manifested. There's no need for religion. Anymore, so that's where I stand. Am I anointed? Uh, yes, I, I still feel, from the point of view, that I was spiritually enlightened. That's that's what I view anointing as spiritually enlightened, spiritually awakened. But I've moved on from that now. I'm not a Christian. I don't don't class myself as a Christian or a follower of any religion. Anyway, that's everything from me this time. Thank you for joining me again. I hope you can come back and listen to more of my podcasts in the future if you've not already please hit like and subscribe bye for now